Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. I think that that's really important. A moment ago when I prayed about um, Jesus being most treasured in your life. Um, this is kind of not where I was going today, and we'll get back into the message. We're going through Genesis in a minute, but I, I just feel like the Holy Spirit kind of leading in this direction. Uh, for us, like one of the things that we're doing here this morning as we all gather and we study the Word, it's an exercise in realigning what is most valuable to us. Because what the world would say to you or that what your own heart would say to you is that the most valuable thing for you is your time. The most valuable thing for you is uh, your own desires or, or what you want. And, and for the idea that you would surrender a Sunday morning when you could be going and doing anything else, you surrender that so that you could submit yourself to worship and to the teaching of the word. That is just one way where we say Christ I want you most treasured in my life. And that's really important because what it does is it transforms a gathering like this on a Sunday morning from just a thing that you have to do to a thing that is a response to something that he's already done. And that's why Sunday morning gatherings with the, churches, with, with, with the church body is so important. Because it is one of the things that we do by, by obeying scripture and doing this, we're saying he is most treasured and valued. He is treasured and valued above my time, above my attention, above other affections in my life. And in life, when things start to pull at my heart during the week, when we gather, it is the reminder, it is not that that is most valuable. It is him that is most valuable. And when I get in a room of many people doing the same thing, it builds in, into like this crescendo of excitement and joy because it's a reminder that you're not alone. Now to segue that idea back into where we are in Genesis, one of the reasons why we read Old Testament books is not for a history lesson, but for a reminder to our souls that that idea that's manifested on a Sunday morning when we all gather and we're all reminded we're not doing this alone, we dip our toes into the waters in the Old Testament of reminding our souls that yeah, it's not just us alone on a Sunday morning because there's these other believers, but I am one part of many things that God has been taking place for many, many years. This is why reading this stuff is so crucial because it is a reminder to your soul on a grand scale that God has been taking people and making them a family for thousands of years. And when you're long gone, he's gonna continue to do this work thousands of years into the future until he chooses to return. And so what we're doing is anchored to this idea that stuff has been going on in the heart of God for many, many years, and you have been invited into this beautiful family, this broken family, to participate so God can work his, his, his will and his work through you and participate in this. You are not alone, you are not the center of the universe. Everything that is happening to you um, is not the worst thing that's ever happened to a human in the world. The, 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 the depths of how bad your story might be right now there is hope for that because you are tethered to a long history of people who have suffered and have been redeemed and have been chosen and have been used by God. Does that, does that make sense? I don't want to get too much into rambling here, but before we get into this, I feel just a real prompting of the Holy Spirit to remind us the gathering, what we're doing, this is not just a gathering. This is not just us getting together. Okay, let's read again. This is not a college class or um, um, you know, a speech that I put together. What we're doing is an act of surrender. This, you sitting here listening to the word being taught and me standing here teaching it is an act of faith. Got it? All right, some of us got it. The rest of you, hopefully you'll get it as we go. I guess the moral of the story is don't treat what we're doing here like you treat everything else in your calendar. 
It's a place you got to be and a thing you got to do. Now, what we're doing here is a response to something that he did. And it's one of the most valuable things that you can do with your time to surrender with the people of God to be changed by Jesus. Amen? Okay, enough of that. We're going through the book of Genesis and we're studying Joseph. Now, Joseph is interesting because Joseph, he covers almost 30% of the book of Genesis. As we're going through the stories of the things that are happening, the life of Joseph covers like a, a good chunk of this entire book. And when we've been following his life so far, we've seen that he's, he was sold as a slave, he lived in prison, he rose to power. Where we left him last week is um, he was preparing Egypt for this famine because God gave Pharaoh this dream that said, look, you're gonna have seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And I'm gonna circle back around to this at the end, but just the idea that God orchestrated this whole thing is just really beautiful, right? Okay. The famine didn't just happen. God caused the famine. God did this. We know this because when Joseph was interpreting the dreams, Pharaoh had the dream twice and Joseph told him, hey, the fact that God gave you this twice is a confirmation that this is the thing that the Lord is doing and he's sealing it as a thing that he is doing with his own hands. So. God orchestrated everything and put Joseph in a position, allowed him to be sold as a slave, allowed him to rise to power and be blessed because he was with him, allowed him to put in a position so that he could save his family, the family that sold him into slavery, could save them from a famine that God sent. Now all of that is like a heavy weight that sits on our shoulders that reminds us that God is in control. And if there was ever a message that we needed right now, it's that. That God allows things, he causes other things, but no matter what the allowing or the causing, no matter what is happening, there is not a thing that has escaped his eye or his memory or his knowledge. Everything is being worked together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And so it is easy for us to step outside these doors and look at what's happening in the world and feel like things are falling apart. And to the, 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 the fleshly man, the answer to that is you are absolutely right. But for the eyes of those who are tuned into what God is doing, the spirit man, nothing is falling apart. Everything is being orchestrated exactly as God sees fit right down to the purging of his church. You, you follow? Now, I don't pretend to say that the stuff we're gonna cover today is easy to swallow. It is the kind of stuff that you will spend a good amount of time wrestling with and grappling with because this is not really easy to swallow. But the truth is that as we study this section of Joseph, we can't escape the fact that God was involving things that we would say, oh, that's out of God's purview, included in his plan to save his people. So let's read through that and study that. This famine was worldwide and God was working through Joseph to accomplish him. We know that God was with him. But as we pick up in chapter 42, we see that the famine has left just Egypt and it has spread all the way to Canaan. And we have this understanding by the way that this is written is that this wasn't just a localized famine. It didn't just reach Canaan, which is a couple hundred miles away. It actually was something that was considered and documented as worldwide. This was a famine that hit the world for seven years. So in 42, we see that it hits home to Jacob and his sons, and that's where I want to pick up the story. So if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 42. We're going to start in verse 1. And God, please show us how you work and what you're doing so that you can be glorified and that we cannot be shackled by fear any longer. Let us see you working in this situation so that we know that you are working in this situation that we live in today. So Genesis 42, 1. 
When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? I love that, right? He's like probably looking at his brothers and all or his sons and all they're doing is like looking at each other. He's like, you know, things are bad. Yeah, things are really bad. Things are, you know. This is kind of, this is where we live. Most of our free time is spent sitting around looking at each other, talking about how bad things are right now. And this is what Jacob says. Why are you looking around at one another? Let's do something about it. Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, which his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Now who's Benjamin? Benjamin was um, the other brother of Joseph, where they had the same mom. Their mom was Rachel. She only had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, and she died giving birth to Benjamin. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So the sons went to Egypt to buy grain because they're the only Walmart in town. (laughs) Joseph was governor over the land And he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where where do you come from? Joseph said to them. And they said, oh, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, 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 my Lord, no. Your your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We're honest men. It's an interesting way to describe these boys. Your servants have never been spies. Now let's pause right there and reflect on what's happening. Because I think it's important for us to understand how much time has passed. Joseph has not seen his brothers in 22 years. All right? I just want to throw this out to you. I want you to see. We know that he was, it was 13 years where he spent in the house of Potiphar and in prison. And we know that the time of plenty, according to the dream from Pharaoh, was seven years. And we know there was seven years of famine, and we find out later in the story that when Joseph reveals himself, that he tells them there's five more years left, only two years into this. So it's 13 plus seven plus two, unless I'm just terrible at this, that's 22 years. So 22 years have passed, Joseph has not seen his family. And Joseph is doing his normal daily routine. He's coming out and he's, you know, he's, uh, this is like a, uh, a market. He's, people from, you know, this land are coming over here. How much do you need? Okay, we'll sell it to you for this much. And how much do you guys need? And he looks over and he sees his brothers that he hasn't seen in 22 years. And what are they doing? They're bowing down to him. And immediately, the dream that he had 22 years ago starts flooding back to his memory. Now, what's interesting about this is that we get no indication that Joseph was in on God's plan on how this was working. Our understanding through reading this is that Joseph seems to be just as caught, got off guard as we are reading this. The idea that Joseph is, okay, the, 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 the redemptive plan God redeemed me. I, like, I was sold as a slave, but now I'm vice president and I'm wheeling and dealing. And, and, and I could just imagine that in Joseph's mind, like this is pretty much the fulfillment of God's salvation. And then all of a sudden, these dreams from 20 years ago start flooding your mind when you look at what God has done completely outside of you. Joseph had no manipulation in this. This was not a Joseph thing. This was 100% a God thing. God did all of this and Joseph did none of this to fulfill this work. Joseph looks down and he sees his brothers and they're bowing down just like he saw in the dream. Now this, just this first section, I feel like the Holy Spirit wants us to treat as a reminder of how 
and in what ways God is working his plans even while you are in the dark. Now, it's, it's a bit of a stretch for me to just assume that Joseph was completely in the dark. I, I, that's what I assume through reading this. So my assumption is that he, he didn't know all of God's plans. I assume that because that's kind of how God works with all of us. He doesn't share with any of us 100% of his plans. We always kind of see through this mirror darkly. We're promised that we'll see completely one day, but not yet. So there's this idea that we're living our lives kind of seeing the outline of what God's doing, but we're not seeing everything completely. And so if we're just tracking with what Joseph is doing in his life, he's seeing God working, but he's not seeing that complete fulfillment until the day that God chooses to completely fulfill it outside of his work. And to me and to us, I feel like that is one of the greatest reminders that we could have today. This idea that we are in the dark because we are broken people being redeemed, but we are also in the dark sometimes by choice. Because sometimes we like the dark more than we like the light. And the fact that we like playing in the dark more than we like playing in the light means that we're going to excuse ourselves from understanding some of God's plans. This reminds me of a quote that C.S. Lewis had in one of his books. He said, sometimes our prayers to God sound like, Lord, is the color yellow round or square? And the idea that God would be able to even answer that seems absurd because that's, that's not how any of this works. And so the idea that we're kind of living in the dark in a similar way that Joseph was kind of living in the dark on the fulfillment of this thing puts things in perspective because we're, con- we're concerned. Well, God, I don't know that you're answering my prayers. I'm kind of confused. I feel at a loss. I don't understand why you're doing this or how this could be worked together for your good. And it sounds like, oh, Lord, it, like, is the number three sharp? We're, we have no concept for the way that he works things together, and so our prayers don't get answered, or God just pauses those because the way we're praying them doesn't make any sense until the moment that they do. Because right in front of your eyes, something clicks and everything falls in line. And as a pastor, one of my greatest joys is watching that happen on Sunday morning. As we gather together and we study the word and we're kind of, I'm, I'm kind of tracking with you guys and I'm watching you and, and the Holy Spirit will click something and it's not even something that I even meant to. Maybe I meant to spend a little more time on driving home this point, but I say this one thing that it's just kind of like, well, that's, well maybe that's a true thing, but I really want, guys, look over here. And I say this one thing and for, you're, and for the rest of the message, you're just like, I'm not, I can't get off of that. You stare at that thing, and, and then you take it home, and you kind of take it apart, and you rework it, and, you re- and, you, and you're just like, God, if, if that's true, then and that changes this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and, and that equation that I was doing wrong, and that's why I couldn't get an answer to that prayer, because this thing that I didn't know until you chose to show it to me. So, God, in your wisdom, please don't tarry in showing me your stuff. I'm tired of assuming that I know how you're going to work things out and only looking in this direction all the while you're doing 10,000 other things over here. I want to be submitted to you in a way where I don't want you to work how I would do things. I want you to work how you would do things because in the end it brings the greatest transformation. Are you you following me? So, we see that God is working even in the dark and it encourages us Because it shows us that even in those moments where some truth is illuminated, there are still massive amounts of things that are in the dark, and that is okay. It is okay that you can have some feeling of mastery on this one biblical truth or understanding, but still be completely, ah, I don't know about any of this stuff. This is how how God works with people. And he, he says, come on, trust me in the unknown. But, but I don't understand. That's good. Come, keep coming this way. Just listen to the sound of my voice. Yeah, but I can't move until I understand. That's not how this works. Keep coming this way. Come on. One foot in front of the other. This is how I dealt with Peter on the water. Come on, Peter, walk out on the water. Cool. All right. How do I do this? Like, is there something I need to be thinking about while I'm out there? Do I just kind of, like, do I just like imagine that the water is solid? No. Come on out. Just step out. 
And when you mess up, I'll tell you what you did wrong. Lord, that's not how I want things to be done. Like, is there a master class I can sit in and I can take notes and then once I pass this test? No, 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 that's not how it works. You get out there and you put your hands on the plow and then once you start plowing uneven lines, we're gonna stop and have a conversation about how your heart is drifting on things. That's how the Lord does things. So you've got Joseph who sees his brothers, okay, so, so, the, so the thing from 20 years ago, now things are starting to happen, but that's as far as I've gone. I don't, I don't what do I do now? There's no understanding for Joseph. God's like, all right, Joseph, you see how I'm working this stuff out now? Now here's what I want you to do next. There's no understanding of what comes next. There's just a, there's just a little reveal. Hey, I'm still in control. I'm still in control. You can continue to trust me because I'm still in control. Look at what I'm working together completely outside of you. So continue to trust me. So what Joseph does is he puts together a series of tests because now his brothers are in front of them. And what he wants to know is after 20 years, has anything changed in your heart? I think that would be a valid question, right? Because probably what's going to require of Joseph is the desire or, or, or the need to start walking in some kind of forgiveness because he, he loved his family. He didn't want to be sold as a slave. He wanted to be with his family. And now they're in front of him. What do you do with this? All right. Well, I'd say that a logical first step would be to see if they're still like this or have they changed. So in his wisdom that God gave him, he starts putting together a series of tests to, to, to measure and expose his brother's hearts. And that's what takes place through the rest of 42. Joseph accuses them of being spies, and he locks them up in prison for three days, and he lets them kind of stew. When he put them together in, uh, away in prison, what he told them, he's like, because uh, in the middle of the conversation, he's, he's accusing them of spies, and they said, no, 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 we're not spies, we're just a bunch of brothers, um, uh, and actually this isn't all of us, there's one left at home, Benjamin. And so Joseph's like, okay, well, you have one brother. I tell you what, why don't you bring that brother, Benjamin, to me to prove that you're not spies? I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep all of you in prison. I'm going to send one of you home to go get your brother. So he puts them in prison for three days to kind of let them stew. And then after three days, he brings them out and he kind of changes the plans. He says, okay, uh, what I said three days ago, we're going to switch that up. Well, we're going to do something different. I'm going to keep one of you and I'm going to send the rest of you home. So nine of you are going to go home with, with the grain and you're going to bring Benjamin back, but I'm going to keep one of you here. And when he says, I'm going to keep one of you here, he grabs Simeon. He doesn't grab him. He has his um, servants grab Simeon and bind Simeon in front of their brothers. Now, all of this is really important because what Joseph is doing is it's a test. It's a series of measurements and tests to expose where his brothers are at because none of us have the capacity or the ability to be able to see what's in each other's hearts. So these tests kind of give us a gauge of like, all right, where are you at? How are you going to react to this situation? So he binds up Simeon in front of his brothers, and he sends the men home, one brother short. He fills their packs with grain, but the other thing that he does is he fills their packs with the money they brought to buy the grain. So these nine brothers are going home, and I can imagine they're not in a great mood because now they're another brother short, and they get home, and they pull out their packs, and they open them up, and they're full of grain, <clears throat> and they dip down, and also is the money that we brought to buy the grain so great, now it looks like we stole the grain. Now, I said that Joseph was testing. How do we know that that's true? Because in verse 15, it tells us, by this you shall be tested. So Joseph was testing them. Testing them for what? What was he testing them for? We know he was testing to reveal their hearts, but what was he looking for in their hearts? Well, I believe that each test kind of revealed a specific thing. First, the idea of bringing Benjamin back to Egypt would have revealed if there was still any envy in their bro his brother's hearts. Now, en envy is a tricky thing, right? We, we like to kind of just wallpaper a wall with specific words for sins and not know the, you know, the differences between them, kind of like a jealousy and, and envy, they're kind of like the same thing. They're not the same thing. Jealousy is I want what you have. Envy is I don't want what you have, I just don't want you to have it. And that was what started this whole thing. 
His brother's attitude was, I don't want your stupid coat or dad's favor. I just don't want you to have it. You follow? I'm not interested in what you have. I just don't want you to have it. This is the thing that resides on the inside of our hearts as well. When you start scrolling through social media and you see that God has blessed one person with something or someone has achieved something, or maybe they didn't, but they're posting it like they did, and your desire is, well, I don't really want that, but man, they don't deserve that. That's envy. So what Joseph is doing is he's, he's measuring his brother's hearts to see if there's still envy in there. Were, were the brothers that treated Rachel's first son like garbage going to treat Rachel's second son like garbage? The only way to know that is to have Benjamin in front of you. The second thing that he did was he bound Simeon in front of them to kind of gauge and measure their empathy, their compassion. What, what is your reaction when you see injustice in front of you? I just want to see. When you watch injustice happen, how do you react to it? That's what Joseph's doing. Are you moved? Are you broken? Does it do nothing to you? This is what he's gauging. What are my brothers like? I haven't seen them in 22 years. How are they going to react to seeing another one of their brothers as a slave? Because I know how they reacted the first time when they threw me in a pit and sold me to a bunch of slave traders who were heading to Egypt. I remember the looks on their faces that day. Do they still have the same looks when they're watching another one of their brothers be bound up? And then the last one, putting the money in their packs with the grain would reveal their integrity. They got the grain and they got the money, but they didn't pay for it. Would they confess that oversight later when they came back to bring Benjamin? Would they come back with Benjamin at all? What do you do when you get the upper hand? Do you put it in your pocket? Are you, are you glad for it? Do you use that for leverage later? Or do you confess, uh, this is a thing that I got kind of, it was a mistake. Just want to clear the air on that. Is that the kind of thing that you bring up? Because integrity is this measurement of your deep moral character. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, I'm going to put them in a position where they have the upper hand like they did when they sold me into slavery, and I want to see what they do with that. Now, this idea of testing, it's not, it doesn't start with Joseph and it doesn't end with Joseph. This idea of testing is a theme that carries all throughout the entire Bible. And the reason why is because it's difficult for you to know what's in your heart. And it's equally as different for me to know what's in my heart. I I think I know what's in here, but I don't really know what's in here. You may be convinced that you know what's in here, but you don't really know what's in there unless the grace of God allows you to go through trials and tribulations and tests and measurements to let the stuff that's in here and hide so very well come to the surface so it can be dealt with. So God gives us tests and trials and tribulations. He doesn't tempt us, but Psalm 111.5 tells us that the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. Moses tells the people of Israel in Exodus 20.20, look, don't be afraid for God has come in order to test you today. Jesus tells his disciples in John 6, 5 through 6, when he was talking with them about the uh, feeding of the 5,000, he asked them, hey, what what do you think we should do? We're told by John that he said that to test them. James 1, 2 through 3, the testing of your faith, not just your actions or what's in your heart produces endurance. So this idea of, of testing runs all the way through the Old and the New Testament. And what it does is it gives you an accurate accurate measurement or gauge on what hides on the inside of your heart. You follow? So that's what Joseph is doing, and it doesn't stop with him. The Holy Spirit does that. Jesus does that in our life as well. So let's continue with the story. Go to Genesis chapter 43. The boys return home, and they do what all boys do. They eat all the grain, so there's no food left. Now the famine was severe in the land, this is verse 1, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again and buy us a little food. And Judah said to him, look, the man, that, that was Joseph, solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, 
we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Oh man. This is so funny. This is like a son is arguing with his dad. And they replied, like, dad, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What did you want us to do, dad? Do you want us to lie to him? He asked if we had another brother and I told him the truth. What we told him was in answer to his questions. Could we in other way known that he would say, bring your brother? And Judah said to Israel, his father, all right, look, send the boy with me and, he, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety and from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not delayed, we would, not, we would now have returned twice. That's an interesting thing. Because we don't know exactly how long they stayed in Cana. So the boys came back with the grain. We don't know how long they stayed there. But by Judah's admission in verse 10, they stayed there so long that they could have made the trip twice. They could have gone down to Egypt and back, and then down to Egypt and back again in the time it took them to eat the grain, all the while Simeon is a slave in Egypt. So one brother is still a slave, and they're eating grain. And now the dad wants them to go get more, and Judah's saying, I'm not going unless I bring my brother. And his dad says, you're not doing this. And he says, look, I will pledge myself for him. I won't let anything happen to him. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let ill come to me before it comes to him. If something were to happen to Benjamin, I'll take his place, which is a big deal for two reasons. One, because Judah is now in line to take the inheritance for his family. And number two, because we're starting to see these boys change. This is not something that the Judah who slept with his daughter-in-law would have said before that whole situation went down. This is the Judah who has been confronted with the reality that his sin is garbage and he needs to start transforming. He was the one who con convinced his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery and now he's the one who's saying, put Benjamin under my care, I will take care of him. This gives us hope that people can change. It is a very common thing for us to just dismiss people and say they're not worth my time and people can't change. But the Bible tells a very different story. People can change. Judah is the perfect example of this. So in verse 11 through 34 through the rest of this chapter, essentially what happens was Jake, they, 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 Jacob agrees and sends all of the boys with twice the money back down to Egypt. So fill your packs and the carts with all of the stuff and then head back down to Egypt and try to make amends and make sure that you bring Benjamin back. So when the boys get into Egypt, they come into the front gates at some time in the morning and Joseph's servant meets them out at the front gate. And the first thing out of Judah's mouth was, hey, just need to clear a couple things up. When we got home last time, all of the money that we were gonna buy the grain with was still in our packs. So we brought that with some interest just to settle our debts. That's interesting. That was Judah's first words. Before anything is said, I just wanna make sure that we're, you understand we're, we're men of character. And that the servant's response was this. Um, I don't know how that happened, but we got your money. It must've been God who put that money in your sacks. Wasn't us, we, we, got, we got paid. So apparently God blessed you. And you imagine the brothers are like, uh, that's not how things work. So then the servant says, uh, Joseph wants to have uh, lunch with you. So we're gonna gather a meal and I want you to go to his house. And you can imagine the brothers, no, 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 we're just here to buy grain. Like what aisle is milk on? I don't need to see this guy again. We don't need to see the second in command over Egypt. Just tell me where the grain is. He says, no, no, you're invited into a meal. So they go to his house and everyone is seated for the meal. And this is what's interesting about the meal. We're told in this chapter that 
everyone was seated separately because Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews. So in one room was the Egyptians. In another room was Joseph because he is, you know, second in command. He doesn't eat with the servants. So he eats in his own room. And then you've got um, the sons of Jacob um, sitting together in their own room and they're eating. And what Joseph did was he sat them in baby order. Birth order. How would... Like, imagine this, you're there with your brothers and you're like, okay, we're gonna have a meal. And you come in, you all sit down and you realize that you were seated in birth order. How did he know that? And not only that, Joseph's instructions were, I want you to serve Benjamin, the youngest son, the most food. I want you to give him five times more food than everybody else. So they're all sitting there eating. I want you to picture this. Because this meal is another example of Joseph testing him. What are the brothers going to do when they're looking at the youngest son, the only living that they think, son of Rachel, sitting there eating five times? What is their reaction going to be? And I want you to imagine the same scene that was set 20 years ago. So, So in this story, Joseph is in one room eating, and his brothers are in the other room eating. 20 years ago, Joseph was alone in a pit while his brothers were eating lunch trying to decide what they wanted to do with him. So 20 years ago, his brothers were trying to decide what to do with Joseph over a meal. And 20 years later, Joseph is sitting alone trying to figure out what he's gonna do with his brothers over a meal. God's providence. God working and orchestrating things in his way and his beauty, in the most beautiful way that you could possibly imagine, like the poetry of this moment, I don't want it to be lost on you. So what happened in this moment? Were the brothers arguing and fighting? No, we're told that they drank and were merry with Benjamin. The story is completely loaded with God's grace because we see God working together things in his timing. And I can imagine Joseph sitting there contemplating What's happening at this moment about how much authority and favor God has given him to be able to be in control from one room over what happens to his brothers when that role was reversed just 20 years ago. And as I'm, as I'm thinking about what Joseph was thinking about, I'm sitting here thinking about the way that God is orchestrating things in my life and my prayer as I'm reading this is, oh God, please let me find pleasure in tracing the wonders of your ways. Well, look, you've probably heard the story before and you're familiar with the idea of Joseph and you've probably heard this taught a million different ways and really heavy on like, okay, well, the redemption story, but there's so much in the middle of just getting to the moment where Joseph forgives that is important for us. I don't want us to ever lose the joy in just sitting back and just tracing all of the things that God has orchestrated and done. Do you know what that's called? That's called a testimony. Tracing, meditating, taking time to empty your mind of all of the things you have to do to just meditate and trace all of the things that God orchestrated to get you to where you are right now. And I could just imagine Joseph sitting at the table just weeping at God's goodness. And thinking about what it was like to serve Potiphar and sit in prison and now have a meal set before him that servants prepared and your brother's in the other room and they don't know who you are and what are you going to do with them? And just sitting there and meditating and tracing on all the things that God orchestrated outside of what you could possibly pull off on your best day. And what that does as as a response in us to want to trust him. Look, I'm sure you've got great plans for what you're gonna pull off this week. And I'm sure you've got amazing plans for your retirement and your job and your advancement and what's gonna happen to you and launching this thing. But there are some of you in here, that said, you, you, you launched off on your own to do a thing last year and then the world fell apart. You did not know that was gonna happen, but guess who did? And guess who already decided how he was going to prosper you and grow you and mature you through the season that would, by our definition, look like our our, uh, uh, 
something that was uh, poor or weak or, or not good for us. No one would stand in the line if God's like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna send a pandemic. Who wants to get in line for pandemic? I'm gonna do some things through pandemic, so who wants to get in line? Nobody's in that line. Nobody. Maybe Paul is in that line, but that's it. Nobody else is in that line, <laughs> right? We're over here like, God's like, I'm going to, I'm blessing people. I'm doing amazing, above and beyond all the things you can hope for imagine. I'm going to take things and shake it down and it's going to be run over. Who wants to be in this line? <laughs> I'm in that line. But no one wants to get in the line of suffering and trials and tests. But if we read this Bible, it is clear. One thing is abundantly clear. More growth and maturity happens in this line than that line. So in our assessment of where am I going to follow God to, go ahead and assume and, and know that before you make any decisions about whatever plans you have, that the greatest path you could walk is the narrow one, the one that nobody's on. That's the one that produces the most fruit. And that's why Joseph was sitting alone eating dinner while his brothers were in the other room. Because God called Joseph to walk the lonely path and it brought the greatest transformation. So let's see what happens after this. Genesis 44, he gets everybody together the next morning after they've all partied, and he gives them one final test. He essentially frames his brother Benjamin for stealing. So he fills their entire sacks with grain, and he takes the silver cup from his desk, and he puts it inside um, Benjamin's pack, and he sends them off. Now, the, the beauty of this is um, Joseph knows what's going to happen because this is a very familiar scene to him. So just for a moment, let's put a pin in this for just a second. I want you in your mind to just kind of track back to the evening that Jacob left Laban. What, after he'd served there for so many years, he gathered his family and they left in the middle of the night. What did Joseph's mom do before they left? Joseph's mom stole her father's idol and hid it in her backpack. And Joseph was a little boy, and we, I can imagine Joseph as a young man watching his mom do this thing, and then they're stopped, and Laban is frantically searching, where is this thing? I'm going to accuse you of stealing. And he couldn't find it. And I can imagine, you know, fast forward 30-something years, Joseph's like, all right, I got a plan. Thanks, mom. And so he hid something in the pack of his youngest brother, knowing that they were going to track them down and look for it. And the funny thing is that all of those brothers, they were there when Laban tracked them down. So talk about deja vu. I feel like we've been here before, being stopped in the middle of the night and people searching our packs. Because they get outside of the town and just, on the, just as they get outside of Egypt, the full force of the Egyptian army tracks them down and comes to them and says, look, one of you stole something. And like, why in the world do we steal anything? We're the people who told you that we had more money. Like, we brought money to pay for the stuff. Like, why would we steal from you? That doesn't make any sense. And so the servant says, look, <clears throat> it's not a big deal. It's just a silver cup. Tell you what, we're not going to imprison all of you for stealing. But if we find the cup in somebody's backpack, that's the person that we're going to um, taken into custody. And they're like, oh, okay. So they start searching through the packs and lo and behold, it's in Benjamin's pack. And you can just imagine everybody's just, they just sink, especially Judah. Because everyone is brought back before Joseph. And Judah pleads in front. Judah makes a plea in front of Joseph. Please do not take my youngest brother into captivity, take me instead. And this plea from jo Judah revealed the fact that his heart was changed. And we talked about this in a previous message series on forgiveness, this idea that godly sorrow leads to repentance and repentance leads to a changed life. What we're seeing is that in Judah. So now the ball is in Joseph's court. 
The boys have passed all of his tests and they're standing there in front of him. They're confessing repentance. They're confessing, that, or they're, they're, they're admitting that they have changed, that they're not the same people. Uh, and Judah, the one who, uh, it was his bright idea to sell Joseph, is now trying to protect his younger brother. He's got two options. Do I lay the hammer down and do I give them sweet justice that's been stored up for 22 years or do I forgive them? And these two options should sound very familiar to us because they are the same two options that you get on a regular basis in interactions with people who are part of God's family. Do I forgive and reconcile or do I lord over them the power that I have? Joseph tells us we should forgive. Why should we forgive? Because the most dangerous place on earth to live is in the past. So in verse, chapter 45, this is where we're going to finish today. Verse 1, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he started crying. Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. That Hebrew word for dismayed it's the, the best way we could say they were wrecked. They had no words. They just stood there in the weight of everything that was transpiring in front of them. And Joseph said to his brothers, he saw that they started being riddled with guilt. And he said, no, 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 no. Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there's still another five years to go of neither plowing nor harvest. Verse seven, God sent me. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me, but God. Now pause there, because that phrase is important. It's not you who sent me here, but God. That sentence is a theological declaration of Joseph saying, God is in control of the universe, but is also involved in the smallest details of life. That one sentence is loaded with the reality that his birth order was part of God's plan. His mom's infertility was part of God's plan. His dad's favoritism was part of God's plan. His brother's envy was part of God's plan. The evil slave trade was part of God's plan. The 20-year cover-up that his brothers participated in was part of God's plan. Miss Potiphar's sexual promiscuity was part of God's plan. Prison was part of God's plan. The cupbearer's poor memory was part of God's plan. The famine was part of God's plan. Joseph's declaration in that sentence is that there is not a single thing in this universe, large or small, that is not touched and contains the fingerprints of our God. The only question we have today is, if that was true then, has anything changed? If that reality, if that confession from Joseph is true, that God works in and through people to transform, that there is nothing out of his reach of being able to use for his glory 
Even the things that we would say are disgusting, he would use those for, if there's nothing out of his reach, has anything changed? Is he still involved in the working of the universe and the smallest details of things on earth? Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What is all things? That's Greek for all things. Everything, all things. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Another one comes to mind is Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the answer to the question is yes, God is currently in control of his universe and is working in and through you, in and through this plague, in and through this famine, in and through this governmental structure we submit to here at the federal level and local level. God is working in and through righteous politicians and corrupt politicians. God is in working in and through things that you think are off the table. He's working in and through them to bring all of eternity to a place where one day he will come back and redeem the entire world. The, uh, we are on a train and there is only one place it's stopping. The station that Jesus says it's stopping at. And all of the noise and all of the arguing and all of the fighting is just noise and arguing and fighting along the train. You cannot shake the fact that God is bringing us to exactly where he wants us to in and through the working of people. And if Joseph knew that, then it sustained him for 22 years and empowered to him to forgive his brothers, then what does this truth do inside of you? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.